We've been studying most of this year Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, which talks about the body of Christ and talks at the end about the fact that, that we are each a part of that body. Every one of us is, is a part of that body, of the body of Christ, and that we've been assigned to a place in His body just as your physical parts of your body were assigned by the DNA that you got from your mother and father. The, the, your eyeballs were assigned to be where they are, and your fingernails were assigned to be where they are, and aren't you glad they obeyed and did what they were supposed to do and went where they were supposed to go? Well, in the same way, He's glad and pleased and blessed when His parts of His body that He's assigned take their place also. Instead of trying to do somebody else's job, we do what we're called to do. But we saw at the end of this a very interesting thing. In the end of verse 16, it says that we are called to take our place and to do our function. And if we do that, it causes the building up of the body in itself unto Him in love. And we've been looking at those last two words, in love, because it's interesting that he says that's the thing that the body's to be built up in. It's love. Faith is important. Faith is vital. Without faith, you cannot please God. We were saved by our, we receive our salvation by faith. We receive everything else we have by faith. We enter into the presence of God by faith. We understand the love of God by faith. It's all by faith. But the thing, what, the, what it is all about is the love of God. And we saw why, because we looked over in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, and then verse 16, tells us the key. And this is the most important thing to understand in this study, because it says that God is love. Not that He loves a lot, not that He loves more than anybody else, not that He loves more than you need, but that's what He is. And the reason is that is so vital is because we so often try to do things for God, with God, and in God without regard to love, and you cannot separate God from love or love from God because that's what He is. Any more than you can separate wet and water. When I stepped into that shower this morning, I was not shocked that I got wet because water is wet. And it's impossible to take a shower and not get wet. So why are we thinking we can do things in God, represent God, speak for God, act for God, fellowship with God, and not do it in love? Because God is love. And so when we pray and ask God to do something, it has to be in love because God cannot move outside of love because He is love. It's impossible for Him to do something outside of love because that's His nature. That's what He is. He has many qualities but He is love. And then we began to look at, okay, what is His love like? Because we've discovered His love is not like the love that most of us know and in many cases the most of us walk in. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13, and while you're doing that, I'll remind you, and we'll see these scriptures again in a little while later on, that in John chapter 13, Jesus tells them what this love is like because He says, this is my commandment that you love one another. We've talked about this before. It's not a suggestion. It's not a regulation. It's not a requirement. It's a commandment. And the thing about a commandment is there are only two choices. I either obey it, in which case I'm in obedience, or I disobey it, in which case I'm in disobedience. It's very clear. The gospel is simple. The Bible is very simple. We complicate it. One of the reasons we complicate it is it becomes an excuse for not doing it. I'll let that sink in a little bit. 
It becomes, in, you know, I was thinking on the way over to death, thinking, you know, sometime next year, I want to teach on excuses. <laughs> but I thought of three reasons why I can't do it now. <laughs> I want to teach on excuses because we need to learn. We talked about this almost two years ago. Learn to deal in truth. The most important person you need to be truthful with is you. Because you can't be anything but truthful with God because God always sees the truth. You're the one that you're fooling, not God. In most cases, not each other. We're the one we fool the most. All right, but that's a message for another, another message for another day. And so Jesus tells us what he means by love, and he doesn't give us a theological definition. He gives us a dynamic, a practical, lived-out definition. Because he says, this is what I mean when I tell you to command you to love one another, is you're to do it the way I've loved you. And then, of course, he goes on to demonstrate that by going to the cross. And so Jesus, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at what he means by this love. And I've told you that the word that he uses there, the Greek word, is a different word than most other words for love. And it's indicating that it's another standard of love. And the standard is, is the way he's loved us. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, we see a description of how this love acts. It's interesting because it does not tell you what it is. It tells you how it acts. And we'll start out there because we've gone over this before. Verse 4, love suffers long. I can't put up with that any longer. Love suffers long. It is kind. Love does not envy. We've looked at the root of love is selflessness. And the root of sin is selfishness. And selfishness is basically, how is it affecting me? What are people thinking of me? What does this mean to me? Are people noticing me? What do you have that I don't have? All of those things, if you look at what we're describing here and reading here, all of those have as their root when we don't do them, I'm looking at me. I'm concerned about how it affects me. Me, 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 me. And we saw in the beginning of our study of this that that all goes back to the author of all of this, which was Lucifer who became Satan because he had his eyes on himself and said, I will make myself like the Most High. His root of his sin was selfishness, self-promotion, and self-protection. And that is the root of sin today. It hasn't changed. But the root of love is selflessness, that the other is valued more than than you. So love does not envy, verse 4 says, love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave behave rudely. Because when we're rude, we're really trying to get back at somebody. Love does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Has anybody provoked you lately? That wasn't love. I don't mean what they did to you. I mean your response. Now our flesh gets provoked. I mean, basically what this comes down to is somebody does something to me, I want to get back at them. And we're very sophisticated about it. I mean, we can be as blunt as just hitting them in the nose. Sometimes that's more honest. We'll do sophisticated spiritual things like pray for them. God straighten them out. We're not the only one. If you read the Psalms, David prayed some of those Psalms also. God, get them. And I'm being spiritual. I'm praying for them. Yeah, but I'm not praying out of love. (laughs) 
The Lord, a number of years ago, took me back because I was praying for my wife for some things and just I wanted God to to help her to understand some things. And the Lord says, I'm not going to answer that. And I said, what do you mean you're not going to answer that? He says, because your motive is you want me to straighten her out so you can, you know, so it's, she's happy. He says, I won't do that. He says, however, if you'll pray the same prayer, so that she'll be blessed because she sees something. That I'll answer. A small adjustment in my heart, in my motive. And so even our prayers can be selfish. And because we're praying for somebody, we feel good about ourselves, but the root of it is how what they're doing or where they are affects me. And so the root of love is when you prefer someone above the other. We saw in Philippians 2 that Jesus did that. He didn't regard the position he had with God as something to be held on to, but he emptied himself of it and took on human flesh and dwelt among us and then humbled himself even more to go to the horrible death on a cross. And he did it so he could have you and me. And that's the extent to which love will go and that's the definition that Jesus was giving when he said, here's the kind of love you're to have. I'm commanding you to have towards one another the same kind of love that I've had towards you. Let's go on and read the rest of this and then... So love is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity. Oh, boy, I can't wait for them to get what they want, what they need, they deserve. But it rejoices in truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. That means the best. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. Now, we then went and looked in Matthew chapter 5, and we saw some specific applications of this, where Jesus, in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, said some rather astonishing things. He said, you know, for instance, um, you, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, love your enemy. He goes on and say, pray for those who despitefully use you. We talked about that. I mean, people who purposely single you out to get at you, to hurt you. Pray for them. Not God strike them with fire. (laughs) He says, if you only love those who are going to love you back, how are you any different than the world? And then he gives the key. He said, do this so that you will be like your father who was in heaven. And where that gave us an understanding is that's how God has done with us. Because if you go through those list of things he's told, you, told us not to do, we've all done them to him. Talks about if he, somebody slaps you on your left cheek, turn your right cheek to them. What he's talking about there is when we, when we want to defend ourselves, it's so out back, we wanna, often we want to get back at somebody for what they've done for us. What if God got back at us for what we did to him? Never talk bad about him? I mean, in your life? Ever take his name in vain? I mean, think about, we don't want to go into what that says, but think about what it says when you do that, what you're saying about God. 
just to take him casually and to take him for granted. But he hasn't gotten back at us. Instead, he's loved us and he saved us. We saw in the beginning of the study that Jesus died for us while we were still his enemy. So he's telling us to do this so that we will be like our Father who is in heaven. Then we went over to Romans 12, and we saw in Romans 12, he says, he says, when somebody's done something to you, don't try to get back at them, but turn that over to the Lord. It's his job what happens to them. It's not your business. The one who weighs things out in the end is not you. It's him. It's God. It says in James chapter 4 that, J- that God is the lawgiver, that when we judge somebody else, we're putting ourselves in the position of the one that wrote the law when we're not even living by it ourselves. So we've looked at this, and this is a very high standard, and I began to ask the question out loud to you last week and to myself is, okay, God says love your enemies. Pray for those that despitefully use you. If somebody tries to steal from you, don't defend yourself. That doesn't mean you don't put locks on your windows. I mean, I've had several people come up to me and say, and I understand it always raises this question. It doesn't mean that you don't provide protection. It doesn't mean that you don't, you know, lock your car. It doesn't mean, what it means is, because what he's talking about there is when somebody does something to you, we want to pull back and defend ourselves and shut down. And God didn't do that. He's kept his heart open. He's not trying to get back at people. And that's really what Jesus is talking about there. It's our flesh that wants to do that. So we began to look at, okay, this is a very high standard. Can we do it? I mean... This is wonderful to talk about in church and say, oh, isn't that lovely? And just, you know, oh, but it's what we do out there. And the question is, I'm just, can we do this? I mean, I'm asking myself, can I really do this? Because I'm holding myself to this standard now. Because I'm, I'm preaching it to you, I've got to do this. And I'm telling you, in the last two months, it's gotten harder than it's been in a long time. <laughs> because I think I'm more aware of the standard. Because we get loosey-goosey with ourselves. Yeah. You know, well, I'm saved, I love God, you know, and I go to church and I pay my tithes and that's all good. But he said, I've commanded you to love one another this way. And I think what happens, and I'm, this is, I've never thought of this before until right now. I think sometimes what happens, we say, well, you know, since I start doing this, it's like the, it feels like the devil's after me. I think what happens is the standard becomes clearer and I realize how far short I fall. Because the standards become more in sight. It's more focused. Which means we've been doing that all along. It just didn't bother us. Can we do this? Well, the obvious answer is if God's commanded us to do it, we can do it. So it's possible to do. So if it's possible to do and it seems overwhelming, that means it looks hard. What's well, interesting, we look at a scripture in 1 John last week that said, Jesus says, my commandments are not grievous, they're not hard. It sure feels hard. And we saw this insight, understanding. It's not hard to the real me that's on the inside. What it's hard on is my flesh. Remember that? You ever, ever, run, ever deal with your flesh? It's the part of you that wants to get even. It's the part of you that gets offended. It's the part of you that wants to puff up and promote yourself. That's your flesh. But the spirit man that's inside of you when you were born again 
has God's nature. So when John says in 1 John, I think it's chapter 4, that his commandments are 5, chapter 5, his commandments are not difficult. They're not difficult to the real man on the inside. In fact, it's your nature to do that. That's why Matthew 5, Jesus is saying, act like your father, act like your nature, act like who you are. See, the wonderful thing about Christianity, see, the rest of the, the, the religions of the world set some kind of standard and tell you this is how you've got to live and they don't give you the ability to do it. They try to change you by changing your behavior. God understands that the problem is your nature. So God has come in when you've come to Christ. God comes in and changes your nature. And the way he changes is he births his own nature in you. But isn't that what happened to you when you became the child of your parents? You have their nature in you. Have you ever noticed you tend to act like them? I remember growing up, my mother would say things to us, and I'd say them under my breath. I'll never say those to my children. And I found those same words coming out of my mouth. Why? Because they were ingrained in me. In the same way, God's changed your nature. We looked over in John chapter 4, where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. The woman was a Samaritan, and that means to the Jews, it was a racial issue, and they didn't talk to each other. The Jews believed that they were spiritually above the Samaritans. Well, of course, you believe you're spiritually above somebody, the person you believe you're spiritually above is going to react to that and strike back. So there was a spiritual, there was a racial tension going on there. So they didn't speak to each other. And of course, Jesus' love crosses racial grounds. It crosses every border, every division, everything that man has put up, everything that the devil has put up, his love crosses over all of it. And so sitting there by the well with this woman that because of his, his ethnic background and because of hers, he should never have spoken to her. He reaches out and asks her for a drink of water. And she's astonished. She says, how come you being a Jew are asking of water of me? And his response is so powerful. He said, if you knew who I was and who it is that asked you, you would ask of me. And I would give you living water. And we saw something last week. I'd never seen this before. And I've taught this many times. I've always thought that that living water meant that if we got a drink of that water, we'd never be thirsty again. That's not what it says. It says, if you ask of me, I will give you living water and it will become in you a well of living water springing up unto everlasting life. And we looked at what is the well. A well is the source of the water. So Jesus is saying, is if you would come to me and you would drink of the water that I am giving you, the life that I am giving you, then what would happen is there would come inside of you the source of that life, springing up every time you need it. And that is his life. And since he is love, it is his love springing up unto everlasting life. And that's what we ended with. Everlasting life doesn't just mean living forever. It is the quality of life where God lives it. God lives life at a level that is so far above where most of us have ever even thought of living. 
And I'm not talking about he lives in a nice house on the streets of gold and all that. That's great. I'm talking about the level of life where God lives. There's no fear. There's joy. There's peace. There's everything is provided. And the Bible teaches clearly that not only is that available to us as Christians in this life, it is where we are called to live. And I believe with all of my heart, as much as I know my own name, that God is calling Faith Christian Center up to that level of life. But that level of life is His level of love because He is love. So we cannot walk in that kind of life, that kind of glory, that kind of joy, that kind of peace, and not walk in that kind of love. You cannot separate. What we're going to learn is the way to get up in it is to walk in that love. I told you the story at the end of last week. I remember when I was about six, seven years old, my father took me, I think it was the first time I've ever flown on an airplane. And we took a couple of flights. And the second flight, as we went to get out on the plane, it was a cold, it was a rainy, uh, it was a rainy overcast day, windy, stormy day. And I got on the plane, and as far as I knew, it was wind, it was stormy everywhere. We got on the plane, and the plane took off, and we had to go up through the clouds. And when we got fought our way through the clouds, we got above the clouds and discovered that the sun was out up there. There was no storm up there. There was no wind buffeting us around up there. It was beautiful. And it was, I still remember, as from a, being a six-year-old child, the, 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 uh, it was interesting because we flew a year or so ago, and there was a child in a seat in front of us sitting by the window. And the same thing happened. And he went, wow, and it brought me back. I remembered that. That's what this is like. We live our life most of, almost all the time in the lower atmosphere as Christians, buffeted about by the circumstances of life. See, Paul learned this secret. That's why he says in Philippians 4, I've learned this secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned how to live abased, which is without anything, and I've learned how to live when I abound. In other words, the circumstances that are going around me, the storms of life, whatever's happening around me doesn't affect me because I'm not living in this life at this plane. I'm living life, the eternal life that God lives. I've tapped into that. And that's where God's calling us. That's the in love that the body is to build itself up in. But it's so foreign to our natural way of thinking, we have to renew our minds to it. So we have to dis- we're discovering now how God has made this possible. Not just possible, but how God can call us to walk in this when it looks to us as if it's impossible. Can I really do that? Yes, you can. And we're going to see that God's made provision for us to do that. So we saw last week in that John chapter 4, the river, the, 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 the well that he puts in us of that living water. And let's go over to Romans chapter 5, and we'll begin to look at this and how God has put this in us. I'm going to go back and look at verse 1 because it gives us the context here. This verse is so often taken out of context. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There's the peace. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way you have peace with God. There is no peace with God except through Christ. 
I know God loves us, but there's no peace with him except through Christ, because without Christ, we're not justified before God. Through whom, that's through Christ, we've also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory. That's the revealing of the glory, the manifestation, the beauty, the life of God. We rejoice in the hope of the, of the revelation of the life of God. Not only that, but this is, this is how Paul had learned to, to go through the rain and the storms of life. Not only that, we also glory in tribulations. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you got, wow, there's another challenge I get to face today. Wow! That was where Paul was. Was he crazy? I don't think so. He'd seen something that we've lost, we don't see. We may see it at times, but then we lose sight of it. Paul walked in this. He said, I glory in the tribulation that comes. Why? Because I've discovered what that tribulation is. It's an opportunity for something. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. The real translations say proven character. And proven character produces hope. Now, hope in the New Testament is not, I hope so. Are we going to make it? I hope so, Pastor. No. The word hope in Greek means a confident, steadfast expectation. I'm going to go into bed as a child, closing my eyes, trying to close my eyes on Christmas Eve because I had a confident, steadfast expectation that when I came down in the morning, there'd be presents under the tree. And that confident, steadfast expectation affected me. I won't go with that. I was going to tell a story about my family, but I won't. <laughs> I remember going to bed one night about 2 o'clock in the morning when I finally, we had finally had everything done to close my eyes, only to be greeted by two of our children who were ready to go. <laughs> they had confident, steadfast expectation. Verse 5. Now hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, this has two meanings to it. The first meaning, if you look at the context of what Paul is writing here, he's talking about the reason that we have a hope of our future, a hope of the revealing of the glory of God in us personally, in me. Why do I have a hope that there's an eternal heaven waiting for me? Why do I have a hope that as I go through this life faithfully that there's a reward? Why do I have a hope that's not, oh, I hope that I'm going to go to heaven, but there's a confident, steadfast assurance. Why is there a hope? Because God has already put in me what Paul talks about as the down payment or the earnest money or the, the little translation means the engagement ring of my eternal salvation. And that tangible down payment, that tangible deposit is a part 
of the glory of God that's already been deposited in me. And it's his love for me has been deposited in me by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit in you is the tangible proof that God loves you right now. But it is also God's nature and therefore God's ability to give that love to other people. So the reason that we're without excuse, the reason that we are able to obey this commandment is God, see, he took all the excuses away. He said, well, I understand you say you can't love this way. I know you can't. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my love in you. So now it's your choice whether you give it away. That means I choose whether I love you or not. I told you in the beginning, love is not an emotion. Love is an act of your will. And quiet. Let's move on. So Romans 5.5 5 tells us that, first of all, I can know God's love because he, I don't have to bring it down out of heaven, the way Romans 10 talks about. I don't have to get it from somewhere. His love for me is in me. I hope God loves me. I don't know if God loves me. Romans 5.5. 5. He's put his love for you in you. Well, I don't feel it. Do you believe that he's put his love for you in you? The reason you don't feel it is you don't believe it. And what we're going to discover, I'll give you a little preview, we're going to discover that another reason you don't feel it is this love in order to be active in you has to flow. You can't keep it bottled up inside and experience it. You can't experience for yourself and not also give it to somebody else. In other words, the only way you're going to experience God's love for you is as you share it with somebody else. But what we want to do sometimes is we want to bottle it up inside and hold it to ourselves. And when you do that, it becomes dormant because the very nature of love is it has to be given. All right, let's go to 1 John chapter 4. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, John 13. And this takes us back to kind of where we started. This is the scene here is Jesus is meeting with his disciples for the last time before he's to be arrested, and he knows what's coming, before he's to be arrested, scourged, humiliated, and nailed to a cross and died. The next time that he is going to sit down with them is going to be after he has been raised from the dead. And he is aware of this. And although he's been telling them this, he knows they don't get it yet. And we'll have evidence of that. So that's the background here. He's preparing them for his leaving. Verse 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. And you will seek me, that word little while in Greek is a very short time. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come 
So now I say to you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered and said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. And then Peter goes on to say, well, Lord, I'll, I'll go with you. I'll lay my life down with you. And of course, we know how well he made out on that. Now let's go to chapter 14, verse 15. He's still preparing them. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now I've never seen this in this context before. But Jesus is preparing them, as I've said before, I've taught that many times. He's preparing them for the fact that he's leaving them. Up until now, he has been the source of their ability to do whatever he told them to do. Because they had no clue. They're watching him. They see him minister to people. They see him heal the sick. They see him open blind eyes. They've seen him on several occasions raise the dead. They see him preach, and they see the crowds just, just draw near to him, and they see their lives cha- changed and the lives of people changed. <coughs> They've watched, you know, literally fish and bread multiply in, in their hands, and they've seen, you know, thousands of people fed with a boy's lunch. They've watched these miracles take place. And they've, they've seen this incredible love that, that God has for people expressed through this man that they've come to love. They've experienced his love for them. But he's always been the source of it. When they got confused, they went to him. When they were lonely, they went to him. When they were angry, they went to him. When they were fighting among one another, he solved it for them. When they were ambitious and their mother of James and John said, you know, you know Lord, I just got one thing to ask you. Can my son sit on your left and right? In other words, can they be next to you in heaven in in authority? And they watched how graciously he handled that situation, how lovingly he corrected them instead of blasting them the way he could have. He could have said, don't you know who I am? How, How arrogant are you to come in on behalf of your brother? Your sons aren't even strong enough to come in and ask themselves. He, could, he would have entirely within his rights, but he handled it in a loving way. They've watched him handle the situations. They've watched him be falsely accused and not react. And now he's telling him, I'm leaving you, and I'm leaving you with this commandment. The way you've seen me love you, I'm commanding you to love one another that way. So not only they're experiencing this sense of loss, what are we going to do? He's leaving. And by the way, he wasn't leaving them while they were sitting out on the, 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 the rolling hills of Galilee when things are peaceful. I mean, the Jewish authorities have targeted this group. And their leader's leaving them. So they're going to have to face the anger and the potential arrests of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because their leader's now left and they're associated with him. That's why they stayed huddled in the upper room. And Jesus said, I'm leaving you, but not that. I'm leaving you with a commandment that you love one another the way I've loved you, that you're willing to lay your lives down for each other the way I'm laying my life down for you. And I'm sure they had the question, 
how are we going to do that? Just as we have that question this morning. And here's his answer. It's the same answer we saw in Romans chapter 5. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper that He may abide with you forever. The word another there in Greek is the word alos. There's two words for other. One of them is alter, which means other of the same kind. This word alos means other of a different kind. Excuse me, alos means other of the same kind. I've got it backwards. So he's saying here, I'm going to ask the Father, and He's going to send another helper, another of the same kind that you've already had. Well, what helper have they already had? Well, He's going to go on and tell them. Verse 17. He's the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him. Why? For He dwells with you. Present tense. How has this helper dwell, been dwelling with them? Because he's been dwelling with them in Jesus. He, he has been dwelling with you. But notice what he says here. And he will be, when I've asked, in you. So the Spirit that's been the source of this love in me I'm going to ask the Father, and He's going to send Him as a replacement. And while you know who He is, because He's been with you, you've seen Him operate in me. And now, this same Spirit, who's enabled me to walk in love, is now going to be in you. We saw in our early study in Ephesians 4, it says there is one God, one Father, and there's one Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. That means, the same, in fact, Romans 8, 11 says, if the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you. There's only one Holy Spirit. That means that the same Spirit that enabled Jesus to love the way He loved is the same Spirit that's dwelling in you and me today. Not a watered-down version. It's the same Spirit. So just as Jesus had to choose to operate in that love, it wasn't an emotion that just overwhelmed Him. It was a choice He made every day. You can see some days He was getting a little frustrated because He would say things like, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long do I have to put up with you? I don't believe you're saying, oh, unbelieving generation, how long do I... I don't think it was a question, it was an expression of frustration. He got frustrated with them at times. You had to understand, he knew where they really were. You see him handling Peter, we just saw that example, he's handling Peter. Jesus said, now where I'm going, you... Jesus said... <laughs> Where I'm going, you cannot go now. He said, where I'm going, you cannot go now. But you will follow hereafter. Peter says, but I'll go with you now. Jesus had just said, you cannot 
go with me now. And Peter says, oh, yes, I can. I'll even die for you. And Jesus, in fact, while he's talking to them, earlier he'd washed their feet. Two of those feet belonged to a man named Judas that Jesus knew was going to leave in a few minutes and betray him into the hands of the Jewish authorities. And he washed his feet. When he's arrested, Peter, trying to defend his Lord, takes his sword, not the sword of the Spirit, the sword of Peter. You got one of those? We have the sword of the, of the word, sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we have my sword. There are times I'd rather use my sword. And Peter takes out his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest servant, Malchus. Jesus, in the process of being illegally arrested, reaches down and takes his ear and heals the servant of the man that's arresting him. That was a choice, not an emotion. He chose to draw of that well of living water that lived in him. And now he's saying to them, this is how you're going to fulfill this commandment. Because that same source, that same fountain, that well of living water that's been in me, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send him to dwell in you. Verse 19, a little while longer, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. He who has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. How can he manifest himself to us apart from love when he is love? But I want to see his glory. I want to see his power. But I can't see that without his love. Because he is love. Keeps coming back to that. We want to separate the wet from the water. I want the power because I want to use it on them. (laughs) The manifestation he's talking about is a manifestation of him. And if he is love, what we're to manifest is His love. His love and His glory are the same. 
his love and his power are the same because he is love. And he says, if you will love me and keep my commandments, my father will love you and I will manifest myself. And isn't that what we talked about in the beginning of this love part of the study? That the reason the body is to build itself up in love is because God wants to prove something. He's proving something to the principalities and powers, it says in Ephesians chapter 3. But what he's proving isn't how powerful he is. What he's proving is what his love will do. And the church, the body of Christ, is his representation of that love in the earth today. We saw last week that in Romans chapter 12 at the end, it says, and we overcome evil with good, with love. I want the anointing. The anointing's in his love. You cannot separate the anointing from love. That's why it doesn't flow so often in churches because churches want the anointing, but they don't want to walk in the love. That's saying I want the water, but I don't want the wet. I want the anointing. I want to feel the goosebumps. I want all the excitement. I want to see the miracles of God, but I don't want to. But we didn't reread in 1 Corinthians 13 that if you do all those things and it's not by love, it counts as nothing because it doesn't communicate God. Uh, How are we going to do this? Well, we're finding out that that love is already in us. Then how does it develop? How do we release it? He ends this discourse um, in in verse 31, which we're not going to go into, but he says, Arise, let us go from here. Now you understand that this was not written in chapter and verses. The editors have done this to make it easier for me to tell you where to turn when we start our study. But this is part of one long discourse that the Apostle John wrote under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So there's a story going on here. They're in this upper room, and Jesus is preparing them for what's going to happen and for what they're going to need in order to fulfill His commandment, to fulfill their purpose. And now He says, Let us, let's get up and let's go from here. Well, they were in a room in Jerusalem. Now they're going to go out to the Garden of Olives, on the Mount of Olives, and go down through the Kidron Valley and up to this mountain. So they're walking. And I've years ago heard a minister teach this, and it, it doesn't say that in here, but it just makes a lot of sense to me. that these, They're walking along up into the garden. As they're going up into the garden, Jesus looks over and he sees a vine. Now vines over there are not like a vine growing up the side of your house. It's like a tree with shoots going up inside of it. And I believe what's happening here is Jesus just turns and looks and he's going to make a point and he says, see that vine? I'm the vine. And my father's the vine dresser. So he's going to stop and take this tree, this vine, and use it as an example to teach them what he's just laid the foundation for. And this is how we can live out that commandment. John 15, I am the vine, the true vine. So he's looking at this vine. There's an olive vine, but I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. What's the vine dresser? He's the one that plants it, oversees it, takes care of it, and harvests the fruit. I'm the vine, Jesus says. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me, now who are the branches? That's you and me. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Well, that's a little difficult to understand, but the word take away also means lift up. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he lifts up. He talks later on about the ones he throws away. But every branch that's in me, he lifts up. Because the goal of the vine dresser is to have every branch producing fruit. Every branch, every fruit branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. You and I, if we're in Christ, are somewhere in this process of pruning or being lifted up. Pruning, I, I don't, I've never heard a branch scream, but I know in me it doesn't feel good. Because pruning involves cutting something back. Something that's maybe producing a little, but the vine dresser who understands knows what to cut back. My mother, when she was younger, was a horticulturist. She went and studied. She knew all the Latin names. and She'd look at these things. You go into her garden, and she would know just where to cut because she understood how the life flowed through the branch. And she said, see, there's a little nodule there. You don't want to cut below it. You want to cut above it because if you cut below it, that's where the new growth is going to come from. I didn't see that when I looked at it, but she'd been trained. God is the vine dresser. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the potential that's in you, but He knows what's in the way. And sometimes what's in the way is good. Sometimes what's in the way of better is good. Sometimes what's in the way of best is better. And God's got to take things and cut them out of your life. But He doesn't have a pair of shears. He is the Holy Spirit who will begin to convict you and you say, you know, I don't know that I really ought to just feel like I probably shouldn't hang out with these people anymore. I mean, I got saved and they were friends before I got saved and I know I'm here with the idea that, you know, I want to save them but actually what's happening is I'm being pulled down and I've just sensed in here and I don't, you know, but I want to act in love but maybe it's the Spirit of God pruning something out of your life because it's, it's not helping you to grow. Now, let me give you a warning. That's not your spouse. God's not going to prune your spouse out of your life because you're one. What God will use is your spouse to expose what needs to be pruned. But the vine dresser, because he knows the potential that's in the branch, will prune it cut it back and my mother she came one time to visit us and we had this nice hedge out front and I'd gone to work and you had to know my mother she would just come in and take over <laughs> I came this was, hedge was about that high when I left to go to work when I came home it was that high <laughs> I walked in the door I said what happened <laughs> and I knew my wife hadn't done it what did you do? She said, we needed that. I said, needed that? She says, you watch what will happen. And when that came back up in the springtime, it came back up full, it came up fast, and it came up much fuller because she knew what she was doing. She still should ask me, but she still knew what she was doing. (laughs) 
but with my limited understanding, I look, you've destroyed it. But in reality, in the hands of somebody that knew what they were doing, it was necessary to bring out the real potential that was in there. You're in the hands of the master vine dresser. So what you're going through right now, in all likelihood, is a pruning. Now you can fight the pruning, rebuke the pruning, in which case you'll continue to prune. He can prune longer than you can fight. And I've learned the easier I can just let him cut away and work away. I just want what I got to learn out of this. Just tell me why I want to get through this as soon as possible because I want to learn what I got to learn because one thing I have learned is I don't like this. Allow him to work in you because what he's developing is the character of the vine. He's developing the character of the vine. that it may bear more fruit. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word that's been spoken to you. We're not talking about whether you're saved or not. You've been made right in my eyes. But that's, not, that's the beginning. This is what I want to get to. Abide in me and I in you. This is Jesus talking. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And just in case you're missing it, Jesus said to them, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me or apart from me, you can do nothing. And if you know anything about a branch, you understand that. A branch is merely the vehicle through which the life that's in the vine flows out and produces the fruit. The fruit is produced at the end of the branch because the life, the giving sap, flows up through the trunk, out through the branch, and it's that sap, that life, that produces the fruit. The power to produce that fruit that shows up at the end of the branch comes from through the vine. And what Jesus is saying is the only way that can flow through the vine, through the branch, is if the branch maintains intimate, close contact with the vine with the source. So how does that work with us? We've been commanded for fruit to be produced to us through us. Galatians 5 talks about nine fruit of the Spirit, and the first one is the fruit of love. And actually, if you go through and study them all, they all are different expressions of that one fruit, love. So the Spirit of God is telling us that we've been commanded to produce love and Jesus is saying, this is how you do it. You're like a branch. So at one end is where you're going to produce the love. That's the area, the end where you have contact with people. 
That's the people that you work with. They're going to see that end of your branch. They're going to see that part of your life. That's the part of life that everybody else runs into, and, and you're either producing that fruit or something else that is not, God, not like God. But the way you produce that is not by trying hard, but by maintaining a living contact with the source of that, Jesus said, which is me. You cannot sustain the love of God, the love of God, your love, you can. You cannot sustain the love of God in you without maintaining a vital contact with the source of that love daily. Because what you gave out yesterday, you need to replenish today. This is why your time with God in the morning is so critical. It's not just whether you're going to have a blessed day or not. You cannot give that love through that day. You're trying to run on a battery. And you know what? You can do that for a little while. If you cut a branch off that has flowers on it, you know, I've seen, uh, I bought flowers for my wife. You know, they, they, you know that, that she goes and puts them in a vase. But we all know that in some period of time, the flowers are going to droop. Why? Because they've been cut off from the source of the life that produced that beautiful blossom through it. So you may be able to run on something, but understand you're creating a deficit. You're creating a deficit of love. We saw last week that in 1 John it says, here in His love, not that we love first, but that God first loves us. The source of the love you have to give comes from Him. And the way we tap into that source is not by looking at the fruit end, but by looking at the vine end. And what our instinct and what religion tries to train us to do is spend all our time checking the fruit out. How's my fruit coming? How's your fruit coming? Well, your fruit looks bigger than mine. I need to try harder. No, the way he says to produce the fruit is by looking at the other end, by looking at him, by focusing on him. See, that's what worship is about. Worship is about getting your eyes off of yourself and getting lost in who he is and his love and his grace that he's lavished upon you. And as you do that, you're allowing that to flow in you and charge back up in you. So now you get out at that work sitting next to that nasty person. And now you've got a choice to make. Am I going to react in my flesh and give them that peace of my mind I can't afford to give away? Or am I going to tap into this love that I know is in me? By faith at first. But the key, see it's, the beginning is to understand that if, if you've come to Christ, if you're saved, if you're a child of God, that love is in you, it's in you now. Because He was put in you by the Holy Spirit. He's in you now. But the reason we have so much trouble is we're spending all our time looking at the wrong end of our life. What am I, I'm not producing enough. I'm not doing this enough. 
I don't witness enough. I don't love enough. I don't do this enough. I don't do that enough. I don't do this enough. I don't do that. I went through that last week. I was sitting here in the, the last uh, edition of the play, and I was just letting the devil talk to me, saying, you don't do this enough. What kind of pastor are you? You don't love people enough. You don't do this enough. You don't do that enough. Well, I burned around long enough that after a while I recognized the voice. But instead of arguing with the devil, I got my mind back on the Lord. See, he wants you, it's the same old trick he started in the beginning. Who does he want you looking at? You. How am I doing? How's my fruit? How am I doing? I'm really walking, I really walked in love today. Wow. My eyes are on the wrong end. I guarantee you, you will stumble tomorrow. I guarantee you'll stumble more. Boy, I walked in love today. Wow, I walked in love today. I can do all things through John who strengthens me. No, Jesus is telling us the key is you lose yourself in me and who I am because I'm the source of it. Apart from me, he goes on to say, you can do nothing. You, I have nothing. Now, in the world's eyes, I do. In our world systems, I do, because I can produce certain things myself. But in terms of what we're talking about, the love of God, I can't produce anything of that. Because it doesn't, the source is not my, me. The source is the Spirit of God in me. And Jesus is giving the key here. Abide in Him. The word abide simply means to remain. Remain in a vital, living relationship with Him. Well, I don't have that closer relationship. You know how you get it? You keep pursuing Him. You keep pursuing Him. You keep pursuing Him. You keep pursuing Him. You keep coming to Him. Be real with Him. Be honest with Him. Open your heart to Him. He already knows. Tell Him where you are. Say, I'm really upset today. Talk to Him about it. He's not going to be shocked to hear it. You're upset? Oh! <gasps> Be open, be real with Him. Because when you open your heart to Him, you now allow His heart to begin to minister to you. His love for you. And you begin to realize what you're really like and how much He loves you because He puts up with you. Because He loves you. And when we begin to realize what we're really like and how much God's put up with us, it becomes much easier to put up with what somebody else is doing because God's loved me this way. How can I help but love you that way? I shared with you last week, I've discovered when, when things of people irritate me, I mean really irritate me, it's a sign that somewhere inside of me I'm doing the same thing. That's why it bothers me. Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's read on down. Verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and withered. They gather them and throw them in the fire and they're burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you. Notice he doesn't put a limitation on that. He says, you can ask whatever you want. Yeah, but it's got to be according to His will. 
And he says, you can ask whatever you want. But I don't know if it's okay. You can ask whatever you want. Isn't that what it says? You can ask whatever you want. Whatever you want, you can ask him. No holes barred. If you abide in me. Because if you abide in me and my words are abiding in you, then you're abiding in my love. And my love will not ask for something that's not in accordance with God's nature and God's character. It will not ask for something by a motive that's not based on love because I'm abiding in love. And love's abiding in me. That's why God can trust you. He trusts you more than you trust yourself. If you're abiding in Him. Verse 8. By this, by what? By the production of the fruit, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And the fruit is the fruit of love. As the Father loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another. And again, I'm reminding you what that love is like, because greater love has no one this than he lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. He says here, Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. That you bear this fruit of love glorifies my Father. Why? Because God is love. We referenced earlier, the few verses earlier, he talks about, and I will manifest myself. He will manifest this life, this eternal life that we've talked about. And I believe with all my heart, as I said earlier, and I said to you last week, there's several places in Revelation and other places where, Revelation especially, where Jesus says to the Apostle John, as he comes to the end of, a one, of each of the letters to the churches, he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. It's interesting, this week I've had an occasion to listen to another preacher on radio, on television, actually saw him preaching the same message. Somebody had gave me a ministry that we support, gave me a devotional, uh, um, uh, prayer devotional, like a, uh, uh, and, and it's based on the, you know, which week it is and which day it is. I opened it up today. It's these scriptures. I've commanded you to love one another, and you can do it because of the Spirit of God that's in you. I don't know what God's saying to other churches, because I'm not the pastor of those churches, but I can tell you 
with all that I have in me, what God is saying to us. But he's not telling you to do something from heaven, and me too, and staying up there watching what kind of job we do, and sits at the end of the day and gives a report card. God has come to live inside of us, and he's awakening us to who we really are. He's awakening us that we literally are his sons and his daughters. And what he's saying to us is, I'm calling you to grow up. There comes a child time, you know, children are cute when they're, you know, two years old and, you know, they do little things that you would not allow a 16-year-old to do, but they're cute when they're two. That's because they've not grown up yet. But when they're 16 and 18, 26, 28, 46, 48, still doing the same things. It's not cute now. They need to grow up. God is calling us to live life above the clouds. There's a place that we're going to get to that's in the love of God, that's that's above fear. Perfect love casts out fear that's above uh, uh, tribulation, that's above everything the enemy can throw at you. It cannot harm you because we're walking in this level of love that God's already put in our hearts. Is it possible? Absolutely. Because God would not call us to something we cannot do. But between the runway and the sun above the clouds, you've got to fly through the rain and the wind and the clouds that buffet you and try to tell you you're going to fall apart and you're not going to make it. But the pilot knows that if I just continue to rise, allow the, allow the air to continue to help me to rise, if I allow that force of lift to continue to lift me up, it's going to bring me to a place where I break through above the clouds and I forget what's doing down there because I'm so far above it now that none of that stuff can touch me. I believe with all my heart that's where the Spirit of God is calling Faith Christian Center. So endure. Keep your eyes on Him. Keep your eyes up. Don't get discouraged by what you're going through. Keep your eyes on the right end of the branch and not on the wrong end of the branch. Keep as close to Him as you can. Do the things you know to do, and we will get there. It is our destiny. It is what God has called us to, and He will get us there.